Have you ever wondered how theology, apologetics, and real life come together? Join Pastor Brandon as he covers these topics in his series titled Life's Big Questions. Here's Pastor Brandon. You know, we've covered a lot of interesting topics over the last several months in sort of this series about questions, life's big questions. I've dealt with a variety of topics, Uh, some topics, of course, being cultural issues. Uh, We've dealt with some of those, most of which we've dealt with some theological issues, some doctrinal issues. And so apologetics, theology, uh, just depending on the nature of the topic, Uh, This series has sort of been where those two fields intersect, and it's important that we know what we believe, why we believe what we believe, that we're able to defend the faith. And honestly, this is why I love a Wednesday night format, um, because it allows us to be able to deal with some topics and some more detail that we wouldn't necessarily be able to deal with in a Sunday morning gathering, okay? And so one of those issues, one of those topics Uh, that I want to sort of transition to tonight and really cover for the next, I don't know, three or four weeks is the topic of the Holy Spirit, Uh, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? And it's important that we know who he is and and what his role is, uh, his ministry in our lives, his presence in our lives. And honestly, this will really uh, coincide really, really well with where we're going to be in the book of Acts on Sunday mornings. Uh, Because this coming Sunday morning, uh, we're going to deal specifically with Pentecost and the coming of the Spirit and what that means for the church. Now, here you, you, some of you are sitting there thinking, all right, you're dealing with Pentecost and the Holy Spirit. We're not going to be turning one of them Pentecostal churches now, are we? Now, let me just go ahead and tell you something. If y'all get to see what I see every Sunday morning when I look at everybody in the faces, some of y'all ain't got nothing to worry about, okay? I'm just saying (laughs) <laughs> you got kind of think of the world to worry about, all right? Uh, but it's important that we know who the Holy Spirit is. And so really what I want to cover over the next few weeks has to do with the person of the Holy Spirit, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, you know, what the Bible says that he does as, as a distinct member of the triune Godhead, What is it that he does, his work, his ministry? Uh, We'll spend a little bit of time even talking about the spiritual gifts that the Spirit of God imparts to believers. You say, why is it important to know this? Because listen, did you know that you would not be saved apart from the work of the Holy Spirit? And those of us were saved, we've been made a part of the body of Christ. This is by the work of the Spirit. God has also gifted us as believers to serve the body of Christ. And that's the work of the Spirit. And so we're going to deal with a lot of that over the next few weeks. Now, before I do that, let me just kind of back up for just a second and say something about the Trinity. Now, you remember we covered the doctrine of the Trinity some months back. And and we dealt with that sort of in a a three-part session. What does the Bible mean when, when it teaches the triune nature of God? Even though that word Trinity is not found, the Bible clearly teaches that God, He's one God, Three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so if we were to put the doctrine of the Trinity sort of into a concise definition, it would be this. There is one God who eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, 
uh, and each person is fully God. It's, un- it's important that you understand this. Each person is fully God. You know, the Father's not more God than the Son. The Son's not more God than the Spirit. The Father, fully God. The Son, fully God. The Holy Spirit, fully God. You say, try to explain that. I don't understand it in my mind. Folks, let me tell you something. This is transcendent truth that we receive by faith. And there's an element of mystery to it. Yet we know God is one, but he is three distinct persons. He manifests himself in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? So having said that, I do want to spend some time dealing specifically with um, the third member of the Godhead, and that's the Holy Spirit. So if you're taking notes there in your study guide tonight, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, eternally existing together with the Father and the Son. So, so the question then that we really we want to tackle this subject from this point of view, who is the Holy Spirit? What is his role? How exactly should he be understood? It's important that we understand what the Bible has to say about who the Spirit is. Now, again, I don't have to work real hard uh, to show you or convince you that there have been a number of controversies associated with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit down through the years. And I'm not just talking about the last couple of decades. I'm not talking about you know, the 20th century. If you were to go all the way back to even the third and fourth centuries, you, you would understand that there were some controversies that were surrounding the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and how this doctrine should be approached. Um, I'll come back to that in just a second. Let me give you these, these notes here first in the introduction. The Holy Spirit is fully God, as is Father and Son, possessing the same attributes as omnipresence, omnipotence, omniscience. Okay, so what do those, those three categories mean? What, do, what does it mean when we say God is omnipresent? What's it mean? He's everywhere at the same time. He's omnipresent. Uh, he's omnipotent. What do we mean when we say that he's omnipotent? Yeah, you see the word potent? In that word, he has all power. He's all powerful. And then omniscience. What do we mean when we say that he is omniscient? Yeah, he's all-knowing. So, so all the attributes of deity are clearly seen in the Holy Spirit, just the same as the other members of the Godhead. Now, something else to consider is that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is something that's progressively revealed in Scripture. And I'm going to show you here in just a little bit that there are multiple references to the Holy Spirit uh, in, in the Old Testament. Uh, even he's there in the early chapters of Genesis. Even in the last book of the Old Testament, he's there. And yet, so much of our understanding of who he is and what he's come to do now post-Pentecost this is set forth in the pages of the New Testament. And so when we say that this, this doctrine is progressively revealed over redemptive history, uh, more and more truth has been revealed 
as to who he is and what he's come to do in our lives as believers. So big fancy word, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, uh, pneumatology. All right, that just kind of comes from a Greek word that means wind or spirit, pneuma. Um, you, you who work with tools, what are pneumatic tools? Hmm? Air pressure, you know, like, uh, I mean, I don't know, what are some new, like air, like finished nailers and some stuff like that where you hook it up to an air compressor and, and so the pressure of the air is important for however that tool operates, Okay. I don't know a whole lot about this. I just Googled it, but anyway. <laughs> but, but you see the thing, pneuma, that's the Greek word for wind or spirit. So when we talk about pneumatology, we're talking about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Um, and so that's, that's very important. Um, so coming back to what I was saying just a moment ago about the controversies, you go all the way back to the third and fourth centuries. Right, go to 325 A.D. for just a moment in your minds. Long, long time ago. But in 325 A.D. at the Council of Nicaea, which was a gathering of church leaders at the time, uh, the leaders of the church came together at the Council of Nicaea to address a heresy that was known as Arianism. Okay? And, and so there was a guy who was a false teacher by the name of Arius, and Arius uh, basically was teaching that, that, that Jesus was not God, uh, that he was not fully God, and yet apostolic doctrine, we know that that's not what the apostles had to say, that's not what the scriptures have to say, and so it, it created a real controversy in the church at the time, so the leaders of the church came together at the council of Nicaea to refute Arianism. And this idea that the Son of God was not fully God, that Jesus was not God in human flesh. And so from that council came something known as the Nicene Creed. How many of you have ever heard of the Nicene Creed? Raise your hand. All right, a few of you. Well, guess what? After tonight, all of y'all are going to know what the Nicene Creed is and why it was important. All right, so the Nicene Creed represented the doctrinal position of the church. What the scriptures had to say about the nature of, of who Jesus is, who God the Father is, who God the Holy Spirit is. And so the Nicene Creed sort of represents an early uh, confession of Orthodox faith. Okay? And I want to put it up here on the screen. I'm going to just kind of read the Nicene Creed for you. Then I'm going to come back to a phrase that's contained in this particular creed. All right, coming out of the Nicaea, the Council of Nicaea, AD 325, here's, here's, here's what uh, those church leaders said. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Now notice the emphasis here placed on the deity of Jesus because they're, they're combating the ideas of this guy, right? Which by the way, 
This guy, uh, his ideas are still around. Arianism is still around. It just goes under a different term today. Uh, Jehovah Witness. You understand? Uh, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit, the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now listen, isn't that what the New Testament teaches about who Jesus is? Just expressed in a succinct form. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. <laughs> now you're saying we're Catholic and we're apostolic. Goodness gracious. You don't understand what this, what this means. Catholic, is, it, it comes from a Latin term, universal. Okay? Uh, someone asked you, are you part of the Catholic church? You say, well, what do you mean by that? As far as Roman Catholicism as a denomination, No. But the Catholic Church is another way of referring to the universal church, the universal body of Christ. I'm glad I'm a part of the universal body of Christ, aren't you? So this is what, this is what, uh, this is what they mean by that, okay? One holy, Catholic, apostolic church, the idea that the church has been sent out into the world with a mission. You know who the apostles were? They were the sent out ones, those specifically chosen by Jesus and given a specific mission for laying the foundation for the church. And, and so that while that biblical office is no more, the church is apostolic in the sense that we've been sent out into the world with a mission. So we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now, you know what the Nicene Creed is. If anybody, if that ever just comes up in regular conversation, you know, if you're, if you're at the restaurant tomorrow and the waitress happens to ask you, do you know what the Nicene Creed is? You'll be able to say, well, as a matter of fact, I do. My pastor talked about that last night in our midweek Bible study, okay? Now, I want to come back a slide to this particular phrase in reference to the Holy Spirit because I told you that there was, a, there was an issue that came out of this that was rather controversial, Okay, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, now the controversy is surrounded with this phrase, and the Son. And the Son. The thing is, in the decades that followed the Council of Nicaea, uh, in the West, uh, primarily in Spain, uh, again, they were also dealing with the rise of Aryan views there uh, in the West. Uh, there emerged various forms or liturgies of the Nicene Creed, which was something that the believers did when they met for worship. 
A lot of times they would recite this creed because, again, let's just be honest. You know, nowadays we're so blessed to be able to have a leather-bound copy of God's Word or an electronic copy of God's Word that we can pull up any time. But prior to the printing press, you know, there just weren't widespread or wasn't widespread access uh, to the 66 books of the Bible, Many of, most of which was contained in codex form and that kind of thing. So, so again, be grateful that you have a copy of God's Word that you can study, that you can pour over, that you can read anytime that you want to. But down through the early history of the church, you had leaders of the church in many ways that would teach God's Word to God's people, and the way that they would deal with so much of it is that they would condense it into forms of, like these creeds, uh, which represent confessional truth that was important to the faith. So, so in the West, this, this phrase then sort of became an addition to the Nicene Creed. Uh, the phrase is, and the Son. Okay? You say, well, what's the big deal with that? You know, this became known as a particular controversy. Uh, it's known as the filioque controversy. And, and um, that just, it's a Latin phrase. It means, and from the Son. The Eastern churches... The Eastern churches said, well, no, keep it the way that it was coming out of the Council of Nicaea. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. The Western churches include this after the fact, and the Son. And at another council uh, in Toledo, Spain, uh, in the 500s, uh, this phrase was actually inserted into the, creed, into, into the creed sort of informally, but it wasn't formally adopted into the Nicene Creed until the year 1054 by the Roman Catholic Church. And so once that kind of happened, then the churches in the East, you know, they, they had a little bit of a doctrinal issue with that because they see clearly in the scriptures, you know, Jesus said that the Spirit would proceed from the Father. And yet, in John chapter 14, which is a passage that we're going to look at tonight, the, the scriptures also says that Jesus himself would send the Spirit who proceeds from the Father. So again, the issue was to clarify the doctrine of the Trinity. Now you may think, man, that just seems to be such an insignificant issue. But you know what? It may seem to be an insignificant issue to us. It was a major issue among the churches, east and west. And there were other issues involving, you know, the Pope, and, and there were ecclesiastical matters, political matters, so it wasn't long after that there became a divide in the Western Church and the Eastern Church, and the church in the West became known as Roman Catholicism, and the church in the East, Greek Orthodox. Now, how many of you are familiar with Greek Orthodoxy, the Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, the churches in the East, all right? After this moment, there was, there was a divide among those churches, and yet, I say all that to simply say, a lot of it comes back to this issue of the Holy Spirit. Who is he? What is his unique role? Okay? So if we're going to live a victorious Christian life, which I want to, and I know you want to, it's critical that we understand the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we've got to work our way through some of the mystery and the confusion even that surrounds the third person of the Trinity. 
Now, let me just say this. The Holy Spirit's often approached in one or two extremes, okay? Uh, either we know very little about him and try to ignore him altogether, or we make him into a celebrity and someone we think we know when in reality we don't know him at all, okay? Uh, you might could say that even within the church, there's this tendency on one hand uh, to, to approach the Christian faith sort of, sort of right just, just here, make it all cerebral. You know, there's doctrines to learn and, and there are classes to attend and there are notes to take. <laughs> and all that's true. But I'm so glad that there's so much more. I'm so glad that there is a real and an intimate and a personal relationship that I can have with God. Are you listening to me? Uh, and yet on the other extreme among some Christians... You know, the idea of theology and taking notes and doctrine and all this stuff. Oh, that's the kind of stuff that just divides people. I want to experience. I want to feel. And so you've got this overly objective approach on one hand. You've got this overly subjective approach on the other hand. And let me just say this. Blessed are the balanced Blessed are the, the Christian faith involves propositional truth that you and I need to know. And the study of doctrine and, and why the, theology, all of that's important. And yet at the same time, it's also true that you and I have been saved, my friends, to have a real intimate relationship, a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit who is resident in you as a believer. And so it's absolutely critical then uh, that, that we work our way through this. And so that's why I want to deal with this over the next couple of weeks. Now, a few major areas I want to cover. The first one tonight is this, the person of the Holy Spirit. The person. And one of the foundational passages in the New Testament for understanding both the person and the work of the Holy Spirit uh, it comes from John's Gospel. Uh, in three chapters in particular, John 14, 15, and 16. So if you've got your Bible, go there with me. John chapter 14. <clears throat> Which is interesting, we were right here in this passage too when we are talking about the truth of heaven. You know, as, as John 14 opens up, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. It's interesting to me that on the heels of this this encouragement and consolation that he's giving his disciples about not being discouraged and not letting their hearts be troubled, uh, he's, he's going to tell them about the coming Holy Spirit. He's going to be leaving. Jesus says, I'm going to be going away. I'm going to be leaving, but I'm going to send you a helper. I'm going to send you a comforter. And it will be far better for you that I go away so that he can come. Because the thing is, for three and a half years, Jesus had been beside his disciples, and they did ministry together, and they watched the Lord as he performed the miraculous. They witnessed his sufferings and his resurrection. I mean, in their minds at this moment, nothing could be better than having the Son of God beside them. And yet Jesus is saying, it's going to get even better than that, because the Spirit of God is going to come live inside you. And so the Spirit of God inside of me is better than the Son of God beside me. And if we really caught this truth, if we really understood this, folks, it absolutely revolutionized the way that we live our Christian life. When you understand who uh, it is that has taken up residence in your heart as a believer, 
When you understand the precious gift that's been given to you in the person of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit who's come to live inside of you. It'll give you power for the mission. Uh, He'll empower you as you live your Christian life and experience as you deal with challenges that come up throughout life on a daily basis. Knowing that the Spirit of God is living inside of you will give you strength as you face all of those challenges. So, so again, here in John chapter 14 and the chapters that follow, this is a passage of Scripture known as the Upper Room Discourse. And in these chapters, Jesus shares rich, intimate truth with his disciples about his departure and the Spirit's arrival. Okay, and all of that's going to happen at Pentecost. I'm going to deal with that on Sunday morning. All right, so, so look there in John chapter 14. Look at ver- verse 12. Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say unto you, in fact, let me just back up for a second. I want to back up. Go back up to verse 10, where he says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Think about all the works that Jesus himself did. In fact, later on, he's going to say that the disciples are even going to do greater works than these. How is that possible? (laughs) Well, it's not so much greater in terms of quality, but greater in terms of quantity because it's going to be the Spirit of God who's going to be living within believers And the works of Christ are going to continue as the witness of Christ uh, is spread throughout the world and the body of Christ begins to be made up of people of every nation, tribe, kindred, tongue. And then an amazing thing that the body of Christ, the universal body of Christ, there's some works that are being done in Jesus' name by the power of the Spirit of God indwelling the church. I mean, think about this, folks. We don't even begin to realize, we can't even possibly begin to fathom the positive influence that New Testament Christianity has had on Western culture. Hospitals, caring for the sick and the dying, for the poor, the preservation of life in the womb. Western civilization, by and large, even even principles of democracy. Uh, uh, So much influence has come from New Testament Christianity, okay? So greater works. Jesus said greater works. Now, verse 12, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. When's the last time you've taken that promise to your knees? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now listen to this. Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Uh, even the spirit of truth 
whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. This is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, within this passage, Jesus is giving his disciples the much-needed assurance that even though he was leaving, they would not be left alone. There would be another divine person who would take his place in their midst, and he would be with them just as Jesus had been with them in a physical sense. Now, think about it. Jesus had been with them for truth, comfort, strength, and yet, at, at the very best, Jesus had been beside his disciples, but the Spirit would come to live inside the disciples. And so he wanted them to know then that his going away was very important. And, and when he goes away, he's going to send them somebody, not something. So when you think about the Holy Spirit, don't think that God has sent you something. He sent you someone, himself who has come to take up residence in your life as a believer. And so the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit's not an add-on to the Christian faith, not an addendum to the Christian faith. Uh, He's at the heart and soul and core of the Christian faith. Uh, He is not merely a force or an influence. Don't ever refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. You know, we're not talking about Star Wars, The Force Awakens here when we're talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is a real person. Always referred to in terms of he and him. And so the first thing we need to understand is that the Spirit, he's a person, not a thing. The Spirit is to be spoken of in terms of he, him, not an impersonal force spoken of like something, okay? Now, what type of person is he? All right, well, to begin with, he's a real person. He's a real person. Someone says, well, how do we know that the Holy Spirit is a person instead of just some mystic force? The reason we know this is that um, in Scripture, the Holy Spirit bears all of the attributes of personality, Okay, when we were dealing with the doctrine of angels and demons, we sort of dealt with this about what it is that constitutes a person or personality. Do any of you remember what those three criteria were? Anybody remember? (laughs) That's right, that's okay. That's all right. But let me just give this to you. All right, intellect. Intellect. Okay, intellect is one critical component of personality. Now, I'm not talking about what size intellect you might have or not have, okay, but intellect, okay? Um, Emotion. Emotion. Um, A rock has no intellect. A rock has no emotion. When you stub your toe on a rock, it's not the rock that cries out, it's you that cry out, Okay? Intellect, emotion, one final one. You're close. Will, volition, will. All right, so the Holy Spirit in Scripture is said to bear all three of these traits of personality. Intellect, emotion, and will. Uh, 
the Spirit's intellect is demonstrated by the fact that there are things he knows with his infinite mind. For example, listen to this, Romans chapter 8, verse 26. The Bible says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the mind of the Spirit is referenced there. Intellect. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. As it's written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man has imagined, uh, what God has prepared for those who love him. Listen to this. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, even the deep things of God. Okay, so the Spirit uh, is a person because we know the Spirit has uh, an infinite intellect. Okay, and yet beyond that, emotion. Uh, A person can be, uh, a person has emotion. Did you know the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4 that the Spirit can be grieved? grieved. What is it that grieves the Spirit of God but sin in the life of the child of God? Okay? Um, He has will because we know the New Testament says that the Spirit himself chooses to impart gifts to the various members of the body of Christ. And, And that's of his own his own choice in the matter. That's why, listen, that's why you should not envy the gifts that another person has because the Spirit of God chose to give you a gift that perhaps not that other person might have. Don't think that just because you don't necessarily have a speaking gift or a teaching gift that you're not valuable to the body of Christ because you are. Uh, I think about those who have the gift of helps, those who have the gift of administration, those who serve in many ways behind the scenes who are gifted to do that, they're gifted by the Spirit to do that, and they are just as valuable to the body of Christ as those who have lead gifts, teaching gifts, those kinds of things. Okay? So the Spirit then is a person because he bears all of the marks and the traits of personality. Okay? Uh, I, I could just give you so many more of these. As far as his intellect goes, uh, the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 11 that he counsels. He imparts wisdom. Uh, he is the agent behind inspiration of Scripture, 2 Peter 1.21. He intercedes. He knows, possesses a mind. The Spirit reminds. In fact, you look there in John 14, down in verse number 26, Jesus said that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Only a person could do that. So he provides truth. He's the spirit of truth. The spirit speaks. You you, you read the book of Acts. Frequently you find the spirit speaking. I think about Acts chapter 8 verse 29. It's the spirit who speaks clearly to Philip, telling him to join himself to the chariot of the Ethiopian eunuch and witness and share Christ and share the gospel. It's the spirit of God who impresses him to do that. Okay? So he he has intellect. Uh, His emotion... The Spirit experiences joy. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse number 6 refers to the joy of the Holy Spirit. You think about the fruit of the Holy Spirit uh, mentioned in Galatians chapter 5. 
The fruit of the Spirit, this is evidence of the Spirit's presence in the life of a Christian. And, and, and that joy then that's true of a Christian, this is a supernatural joy that the Spirit himself produces because he's the Spirit of joy. Peace. Um, peace is, is a supernatural uh, 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 fruit that's produced in the life of the believer because, because the Spirit himself Peace. He's the spirit of peace. That doesn't mean the absence of conflict, but listen, the spirit of God gives you peace in the midst of the conflict. And on and on we could go. So he has intellect, he has emotion, his will, as far as his will is concerned. Genesis chapter 6 verse 3 says that the spirit contends with sinners. God said, my spirit shall not strive with man much longer. Uh, The Spirit's the one who gives direction to believers, Acts chapter 16. It's the Spirit who distributes spiritual gifts. It's the Spirit who regenerates, brings to life the person who has trusted in Jesus Christ as his or her Savior. The Spirit is the one who quickens you, makes you alive in Jesus Christ. Read John chapter 3. That's the whole point of what Jesus is telling Nicodemus in John chapter 3. So, so the thing is, I've said all that to say he's a real person. He's a real person. And then he's a divine person. He's God. Third member of the Trinity. He's God just as much as the Father, just as much as the Son. And this is truth that's evident all throughout Scripture. For example, he's omniscient. Isaiah chapter 40, who has measured the Spirit of the Lord. What man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The idea is, you know, it's the Spirit of God who is omniscient and has all wisdom and knowledge. Uh, He's omnipresent. Psalm 139, uh, the psalmist says, where shall I go from your spirit? (laughs) Think about it. <laughs> he, he's, you want to run from God? He's already where you're wanting to run to. <laughs> you can't outrun him. You can't get away from him. The Spirit of God, he is omnipresent. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. Job 33, verse 4, the Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Psalm 104, you send forth your spirit, they're created. You renew the face of the ground. So the Spirit does then what only God can do because He is God. It's the Spirit who's active, superintending the virgin birth of Jesus, as we read about it in in the Gospels. It's the Spirit who's inspiring Scripture. It's the Spirit who's active, along with Father and Son in Genesis chapter 1. The Bible talks about the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the watery depths. He's present at creation, uh, bringing order out of chaos. And on and on and on we could go. That's why Peter says to, or to Ananias uh, in Acts chapter 5, why have, you, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? Seeing you've not lied to man, but you've lied to God. You've lied to God. And by the way, sins against the Holy Spirit are among the most serious in Scripture. So he's a real person. He's a divine person. He's a unique person. He's a unique person. You go back to what Jesus says there in John 14. 
refers to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth. Verse 26, he's the helper. He's the Holy Spirit. He's holy because God is holy, totally separate from all that is unlike who and what God is. And and by the way, this this is also an important title, Holy Spirit, because it focuses on his primary work in the lives of believers. You know what his Spirit's primary work in your life is? Listen to me. The Spirit's primary work in your life is to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. Sanctification. To mold you, shape you, conform you into the image of God's own Son. Someone says, well, what is it that the Holy Spirit wants to do in my life? It may not be to give you a particular gift that you envy in the life of someone else, but you know with, without uh, having to really think about this too much, God's will for your life is that you be conformed to Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is going to take the truth of the Word. He's going to take the circumstances of your life. He's going to take the influence of other believers. And all of this, the happenings of your life, And he's going to conform you into the image of Jesus. And that is the Spirit's ongoing work in the life of a child of God. And by the way, that work will not be complete until the day he takes you home. So that means there's always room for growth in your life. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit means that, listen, you never are going to arrive at a place in the Christian life where you know it all. I met a lot of people who think they do. And they often give our lives, I mean, they give, they give us a fit in the church at times because they're proud. But the beauty of this, the more that you get to know God, the more you get to know yourself, the more humbling it is in your life. Aren't you grateful for the Holy Spirit? Amen. Well, next week I'm going to talk about the symbols of the Spirit, various symbols. I'm going to give you these so y'all don't have to go home with blanks, but I'm not going to explain them. Symbols, and then the work of the Spirit, number three, gifts of the Spirit. That says three, but it's four. Okay. Would you stand with me? Our Father and our God, we're grateful tonight for the truth of your word. Truth that we can know and that we can study. Not just for the sake of knowledge, but Lord, for deeper intimate knowledge, experiential knowledge. So that we can worship you and make you known, Lord God, to those that don't know you. We thank you for your precious spirit who's been given to us as believers the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. It's the spirit who bears witness with our spirit as believers that we are the children of God. (laughs) And we thank you for this precious gift to empower us for the mission of making disciples and sharing the gospel, to gift us for the purpose of serving the church, to unite us together and make us one and produce unity in our fellowship as believers. Lord, we thank you for this precious truth the person of the Holy Spirit. Lord, whatever circumstances we'll encounter this week, Lord, you know what those are. We can trust you. You'll give us wisdom. You'll empower us. 
You're an ever-present help in times of trouble. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.